You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti. I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at ABA's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have a packed house. I don't think we've ever used so many microphones in one recording, but I'm so pleased to welcome again to the air, Miss Monica Bay. She is a fellow at Codex, but also a former host of ours on Law Technology Now. Welcome. Happy to be here. Great. So we have a ton of guests today uh, that just got out of a uh, speaking event titled Innovations Within the Legal Sphere. I'm going to introduce them in turn. It's going to take a little while, but it's well worth it. So first up, I have, um, hang on one second, I lost my place. (laughs) So I have uh, Professor uh, Oliver Goodenough, and uh, he joins us from... I'm uh, at the Vermont Law School is my home institution, but I'm also a, a, a visiting scholar here at Codex for, for the term. Okay, welcome, welcome. And then next we have Margaret Hagen. Hi. And we have Mr. John Sue. And next we have Miss Lucy Bassley. Welcome. Thank you. And we had last we have Mr. James Sandman. So now that we've got everybody out on the table here, I'm going to get in a little bit more in-depth uh, introduction. So we're going to start with uh, Professor Oliver Goodenough. You already told us you were a professor and where, but uh, you do a little bit more than that. So where do you work and what do you do? Well, in this context, I do a lot around legal technology. in, in the legal academy, uh, technology has been a little bit of, 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 of the, the poor stepsister at the dance uh, because uh, it, it's certainly uh, emerging into the world of practice and increasingly into the world of judging and, and, and where we head with, with it. Uh, but the legal academy has been a little slow to, to, to catch up. So I've been viewing it as an opportunity. And so I'm, I'm uh, researching and writing around the impact of technology on law. Great, great. And Margaret? Hi. So I am a fellow here at Stanford Law School Center on the Legal Profession, and I'm a lecturer at Stanford's design school, the D School. And I'm lucky enough to be prototyping an R&D lab for legal services. So I'm looking at how can we improve the user experience of the law and what are those new interfaces, those new models that make legal services accessible, if not really engaging and fun for lay people to use. Great. John. So uh, I've been, I'm the, currently the CEO of LegalZoom, and I've been an internet entrepreneur for the last 20 years. Great. Lucy? I'm an assistant general counsel at Microsoft, and I spend half my time negotiating contracts and the other half managing a a pretty robust contracting process on behalf of the company in the legal department. Great. James? I'm president of the Legal Services Corporation, which is the country's single largest funder of civil legal aid programs for low-income people. We fund 134 independent legal aid programs with almost 800 offices serving every county and every state and the territories. Great. Well, obviously, the expertise at this table is incredible. Uh, I'm going to turn the microphone a little bit over to uh, Monica Bay. So I wanted to get the 50,000-foot version in general. I know there were several presentations in innovations within the legal sphere, but, but what was the general messaging all the way through? I would say the general message is it ain't working and we have to fix it. And it's time to look at how we fix it, and it's time to step back and say, we're looking at everything fresh, and we're going to break things, and we're going to change things, and, and we're going to use technology in a way that becomes user-friendly. And I think the most important thing I've learned in the last 48 hours is it's time to stop thinking about the lawyers. It's time to think about the cons- the the um, consumers. I think that was yours, Jim. 
Were you, uh, Jim, did you, pre- did you pre- present first? I did. Okay. And, and what was your presentation about? Well, I focused first on the extent to which our current legal system is not working for low-income people today. If you can't afford a lawyer, it is almost impossible to navigate the legal system. It's a system that was created largely by lawyers for lawyers and based on the assumption that you have a lawyer. The system does not work as intended if you don't have a lawyer. And I talked about the changes that have been implemented to try to improve that situation, to try to make more lawyers available to more people, and to use innovations like technology and court-based self-help resources to assist people who have to go it on their own. But my fundamental point was that as long as we think of the problem in that way and think only of solutions that way, we're doing workarounds. We're not solving the fundamental problem, which is that the system is broken and it doesn't work for too many consumers. You know, I was surprised. Uh, one of my takeaways uh, from uh, from the uh, different speaking events was that it's not just uh, the poor people that can't afford legal services. The fairly well compensated people, uh, middle class, if you will, are having a hard time paying for legal services. And so much so that in some jurisdictions, you're hearing about 80 percent of people are representing themselves in family court. And so, or family law court. And so I just, that, that is staggering to me. So um, James, it, do you think the problem is getting worse? Has it plateaued? Has it always been this bad? Or are we seeing a growing trend of non-representation and, and um, I guess, underservicing of certain uh, communities? I think it's getting worse. Okay. I think that as the cost of legal services has increased, paying for a lawyer has gotten beyond the reach of more and more people. I think the recession had an impact on that. I think particularly as many homeowners faced foreclosure, they really confronted firsthand how expensive legal services are. People who had previously had enough income to be able to buy a house were not able to pay for a lawyer to fend off a foreclosure, a wrongful foreclosure. So I I think the, the problem has long affected poor people, very poor people, but I think it now includes people of modest and moderate means as well. You know, I just read an article, uh, 25% of Americans do not have any type of savings. And uh, I don't know if that is a result of the uh, recession so much. I'm sure in part it is. I don't know if it's uh, a sociological shift, but uh, I mean, it, this is, I mean, these financial conditions obviously are uh, contributing to this. Did, were there any other factors that, that are jumping out at you as causing this, this gap between those that can afford legal services and those that can't? Well, it's been made worse in recent years by funding cuts uh, that provide legal aid to people who can't afford a lawyer and are financially eligible for it. So a lot of people show up for a legal aid program. They meet the eligibility requirements, but the legal aid programs don't have the resources to help them. As a consequence, you're seeing across the country more and more judges reporting higher and higher percentages of people unrepresented in very important cases, cases that involve eviction, foreclosure, child support, child custody. People are having to try to navigate those systems by themselves. That doesn't work. That is difficult. Yeah, to put Professor Goodenough had mentioned that the decreasing access in the legal system is a feature of the system, not a bug of the system. It's how it's designed. And some of the stats we went through is that over the last 30 years, you can see the increasing and dramatic rise of pro se, uh, particularly in family courts, is one of the things I mentioned from going from 1% to now 67% in the state of California. So it's a problem that's successfully gotten worse over 30 years, and it's now achieving achieving crisis proportions to the point where the cost has spiraled so far out of control. The average solo practitioner can't even afford their own hourly rate. Wait, say that again. 
the average solo practitioner in this country cannot afford their own hourly rate. So when a solo practitioner needs legal representation, they can't even <laughs> afford to pay for it themselves. Well, I'd say most solo practitioners don't pay $200 or $275 or whatever your region may be to anybody wow. because their median income is not is around 63000 That's staggering. So uh, who went second in the order of presentations? I did. Oh, I, okay. So John, a nice segue. Yeah, it was a nice segue. It was a very nice segue until I ruined it. I ruined your segue. But uh, John. But actually, that was the, the nice part of the ordering because it, there's really two parts of the story. And it, it, there's always been lack of access to legal services for the 15% or so of the population below the poverty line or for immigrants that we don't count yet because they're not part of the <laughs> But they're here. And now access is, is really hit the 84% of the middle class in a massive way and small business. Obviously, the big, big law focuses on the, if you're very generous, the top 1%, it's really 0.1% of the top 25,000 businesses. But even big law is facing a huge crisis. And this is something that we talked about that, that uh, Judge John Facciola, who just also retired, um, was very, very concerned that, and Microsoft experiences this, and they're very public about this. Even in the folks that have all the money, they're spending so much money on pre-prep for litigation because of the requirements that they, when you reasonably expect that you might be getting a, a, a lawsuit. And what that's doing is that shoving even the top, the global, the global firms out of the courts. And it's, it's a real crisis, and nobody's really going to cry any big tears about, you know, gigantic, gigantic firms. But you know what? If Microsoft has to spend all that money, it's, gonna, it's going to affect the um, – if Microsoft is spending all that money, it's going to affect what I pay to buy the next, the next uh, computer I buy from them. Yeah, I, I would posit the, the – crisis or the fundamental issues, and, and there are big issues in big law, they're uh, high-class problems. They're not ones of access. Right. They're ones of controlling costs. Right. Here, we're talking about people not being able to take care of their families, not being able to protect their business from the liabilities. So, you know, it doesn't make sense that to take the average entrepreneur that starts up here, you, you scrimp, you save, you take your nest egg. Uh, many times you max out your credit cards, you launch your business, and small business has a rate of failure. So one group says, oh, that sucks. It didn't work out, but I'm going to you know, lick my wounds. I'm going to think about what I learned. I'm going to go back out there again. And, and the law protects the liabilities of the business. But another group decided to do a sole proprietorship, so they lose their house because they didn't know there's a construct out there like an LLC or an Inc. that would have protected them. But they didn't even know that existed. So when I think about access and the penalty for access or lack of access, it's wildly more dramatic for the 15% below the poverty line for a small business and for the average middle-class American. I think that was another great takeaway from this event was the the real-life consequences for the lack of access. I mean, I, I, I think of uh, Judge White's presentation yesterday, which really, really rang my bell, honestly. You know, you think about, you know, these are people that come out of jail, they're trying to get jobs, and our society 
decides to turn its back on people that are supposedly have to serve their time. And, you know, they end up repeat offending and they go back to jail forever, or a very long time. And it's just, it's terrible. And uh, I think that, that that's been a big wake up call for me, just seeing this, the 80% in family laws, another staggering number that I learned that people that don't have representation, how profound the impact on their lives can be if you don't have representation. You know, I almost wonder if it's part of this, the innovation of law, I wonder if maybe another part can be, can we have less laws? Can we have laws maybe reduce the impact? I mean, you wake up every day, every day there's some law that handles something. I mean, when you drive your car, when you get in your car, when you are getting a coffee at McDonald's, you know, there's laws everywhere. And so I almost wonder if, you know, maybe that can be an innovation of law, maybe less laws. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, I would say I would say yes. The the creation of the of laws is what everything comes back to when they say that you know lawyers are doing this on purpose, right? There there's this feeling that lawyers are somehow behind the fact that there are a lot of laws. Lawyers are behind the fact that nobody can read their consumer contracts when they buy an online service and they have to click on things that they don't understand or the back of their uh, airline ticket, right? Or I realized looking at my validation, um, my valet receipt, I had no idea that as I'm climbing in the elevator and just looking at it, it says, these are the terms of your contract with us. I didn't know that when I left my rental keys in their hands. So I think there are laws that exist with a well-intended purpose, for example, in the consumer protection space, uh, yet those laws are always looking after the fact. They're looking at how do we help solve the problem and protect. What we need to do more of is really look at how to not get into those problems from the beginning. So another access conversation I think needs to happen in our case, for example, in a commercial space, is we have consumers now buying everything and anything, and they're clicking through things online. They are signing up to obligations that they don't understand faster and faster in third world countries with these new cheap devices. And I don't know what the law is doing to protect them before they click. You know, in our company, of course, we're big. We have resources. We've had a huge push for years to simplify our contracts, our consumer-facing contracts, whether it's the MSN online or Outlook.com or whatever it is that people are signing up for every day. Of course, these aren't as critical and dire when you compare to family law issues. Absolutely, it's different. But these are still people's well-being, their income that might be at risk, and how they're procuring certain services now. So access is becoming a topic, I think, that goes even beyond the obvious when we're talking about immigration and family law and, and other areas. But really, how are we protecting these people in advance of them just living their lives and operating in a world that is moving faster than they are? I see there's a direct link there between how the court and legal services in family law divorce debt communicate with lay people and also how corporations communicate with lay people. It's also it's all about how do we make them first of all engage with this information mm-hmm. so they don't put the ticket away or ignore what the court has to say in its worksheets or other public-facing materials, and then after we engage them, how do we help them comprehend? How do we help them use that information to make smart decisions? And this is why I am such an advocate for user experience in law, is we can borrow from that world of design that knows how to communicate to people, Mm -hmm. knows how to get them excited, and then help them to be smarter for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that same approach needs to be used in both those corporate contract-to-consumer and court-to-consumer kind of situations. And one of the difficulties we face in this is that most of that complexity, most of the difficulty, much of what we see comes as a result of well-meaning decisions. Uh, again, there is, as, as you mentioned, this kind of notion that lawyers have designed this to, to be, be a thicket so that they can charge to guide you through it. Actually, what's happened is, is our best aspirations 
on all kinds of things have created a lot of the thicket. Uh, the, 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 the extra steps of due process that make the courts more complicated and more expensive. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the extra stages of, of commerce that we now have to, to deal with. A life of, it has become a very complex thing, and some of the complexity we face around the law is the law trying to do that. What we really have to do is figure out how to back that down, uh, not not in a way that, that that undoes things necessarily, but back it down so that there's access. And whether that's done through through uh, the courts and the legislators originally, or through the intermediaries of of, of companies like LegalZoom, you know, that that the, or and through better design, there's a whole set of tools we can unleash on this. But what we really need to do is begin to be in t- intentional around the kind of tools that 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 are doing uh, great software and great uh, consumer apps. Uh, Need to be put at the at the the, the disposal of the folks uh, uh, designing and administering our legal processes. Yeah, and it, I think it's so much of it. It's thinking at the system level rather than in the individual, because you know it's often been quoted here at this conference that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you're a lawyer and you want to do good, you change the law, then you create a new law, then you create a new law. You're not thinking about if I create ten thousand of these things, what does that create, right? And and access, I think, an important point. Um, that Margaret brought up is access is not just price. It's not just price and availability. It's do I know I have a legal problem? Big issue. Can I afford it? Another big issue. Do I understand it once I'm face to face with my lawyer or my contractor or my issue? So user interface design copywriting are part of access. Because if I don't know what I'm doing, that's actually a, a huge barrier mm-hmm. unto itself. And it's and particularly when we deal with those that don't speak English as their as their native language, right, or that are less educated about the system, that system design from the images to the infographic to the six-step process without giving people that roadmap, we're preventing people from understanding. And that itself is probably the biggest barrier. Last year, there was a phenomenal movie. I believe it was called Terms and Conditions. Um, may apply, but I may have it wrong, and I wish I could remember the, the, the fellow who did it. We showed it at Legal Tech uh, New York, and it was all about the dangers and the problems with it. And in one, it was actually comical because one of the vendors had put that um, – that if you sign the thing you were giving giving the company their first your firstborn child and that's just you know <laughs> right there in it it was because nobody reads them nobody um, and it really you're you're absolutely right it can get it can get you in trouble there was a there was a comment or as a comment question by uh, by Bill Newcomb that uh, threw me on my haunches a little bit and so what I'd like to do is uh, paraphrase uh, what he asked and I'd like to get uh, each of you to give an opinion on this and you know we're talking about innovations in law and I think it's really about how do we how do we solve these problems and not all the problems are equal you know some of the problems are relatively minor when you're talking about like a traffic ticket or a parking ticket compared to lifetime of incarceration that's a very very huge problem but he's said, uh, imagine a universe of no courts, no courts to, uh, to, to resolve your disputes. And so I guess like my question is, when would that be appropriate? We'd put so much trust into this, this social contract, this, this series of laws that we have, <laughs> that fabric that holds us all together as a country, you know, it holds us together in our, in our communities that we, that we reside in. And so I just wanted to, to kind of get your opinion on that. Can you imagine a world where we do not resolve our disputes and our problems through courts? It's already there. I mean, it, in that we don't resolve most of our disputes. Most of our disputes um, uh, settle out in some kind of fashion. 
Uh, I can't imagine his world of no courts because the court is a is a fundamental backstop. In other words, that if that thing that we cannot resolve and and we're just going to hate each other and not only hate each other, but shoot each other. You know, if if you don't have a backstop with the power of coercion of the state giving you a place to go where someone will finally say it's this way. Shut up, and here's the sheriff. Uh, you know, you, 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 that, there is a role for that in this world. The trick is the role for that should be limited, should be as, as uh, you know, as, as limited as possible uh, to, to if, 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 so that we can, if we can work things out previously. The other piece of it is, by the way, though, that, that power, even in informal circumstances, power is often uh, on the side of, 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 of uh, you know, the money and the, the whatever, whatever the traditional sources of power are, so that the unempowered frequently uh, have, have, have some disadvantage in the informal systems, too. That said, in, in informal, you know, the more we can push in the direction he was talking about, about informal, uh, terrific. Last point I'd make on it, though, is that, that our mobile society, he, he was mentioning, you know, the, the, the village elder and all that. Most of us don't live in villages anymore. And, we, right. we, and I, you know, if I asked you who your vi- village elder is, you know, you'd go, I don't know. Uh, uh, so, 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 you know, how can you recreate that? Do we, we have uh, Facebook elders? I don't know. We've we, we got to think about where, where that might go. But his vision is terrific. The implementation of it is going to be complex. But I think to my point was that, yeah, you know, if, if, if there's big serious things, of course, we need a court. But but right now, there's a growing alternate opportunities for, you can you can go online and, and in some cases for free, go through a, a, a program that will help you go back and forth and resolve the question. Um, well, it's amazing how fragile that is. You know, you have an official tribunal of some sort that that resolves the dispute. And it's it's amazing how fragile it is because, you know, there's certain problems we go to our parents for or friends for or like you ask for a third party. It's like, what do you think? I'm fighting with my significant other. What do you think? And so you resolve it that way. But, you know, I think the recent events in Baltimore, you know, show what happens and show exactly how fragile it is when you feel disenfranchised it from a system. And the reaction to it, you stop believing in that. And once you stop believing it, then you no longer have a tribunal and you turn to, I guess, I, I don't know what you call it, anarchy. You turn to uh, violence to resolve your disputes. And it's, it's, uh, it can be very terrifying. What do, you, what do you guys think about that? Well, I would say, so in the area of, um, you know, again, I think when you have, to, you have to divide between kind of your commercial disputes, which is what I think the bulk of consumers live in every day uh, with, I think, the example, you know, that you're bringing up. I mean, those in the in the kind of criminal um, legal arena, I I think we have different things we need here. So I would hate to say that we could do without courts. And I think this is what um, what Professor Goodenough was maybe leaning to is we need something. We know we need something and we need something for some subset of issues. So I'm not even saying we need something for everything, because in the case of commercial contracting, for example, or or consumer contracting, um, would I write my contracts differently if I knew there was no court? Probably uh, half the time that I deal with my internal business clients, I'm saying, imagine a period, a peer of 12 of your um, a jury of 12 of your peers sitting and trying to read this. And of course they say, well, you wrote it. <laughs> and and it, it immediately puts, it makes you think, right? Are, are we designing everything for the court? Are, is that every premise that we're starting with? And I think, again, in a commercial contracting space or a consumer space, 
there is definitely progress we can make. I think that the need for a court system for commercial dispute resolution should be on the decline. I, I would totally agree with that. The other examples in a criminal or, or even civil, you know, family law issues, very, very different. So it can never be a boil the ocean. It can never be a one size fits all. But boy, it's time to take a scalpel and start approaching it, right? Not, not a sledgehammer to the courts, I would say. I think I was excited by, by um, Bill Newcomb's vision, but I would scale it back a few steps. I think the core insight is that the current system is not at a human level, that the amount of administration, the amount of process is just inhuman. It's confusing and it's um, off-putting. So if we take that as one of the core insights, what kind of court then would we end up with? Something that's more conversational, something that's more transparent, something where the procedure is uber like simplified, mm. like just much more direct. So if we can think about kind of fast tracking or mediation led courts, if that's kind of a vision that can come out of that comment, I think I'm excited about that. We talked about law school innovation. I would just have to say my first civil procedure class in law school is probably the reason I ended up going into commercial transactional law. <laughs> to me, that was a fundamental waste of energy and resource. And with all due respect, I absolutely do not understand the need for that amount of procedure of where holes are punched and how many inches of the margin. I know it needs to be readable, right? I love formatting. I, I come from the company of Microsoft Word. Boldface <laughs> is great, right? Outlining, numbering is good. But civil procedure, I have to say right now, if I was talking to any law student, I'd say, run. That is just not what we should be supportive of. And I don't know, you know, what can we do to change that, even just a tiny smidge? Well, this is a piece that technology can help us with, because all of that <coughs> funny um, um, uh, numbering and how many holes and, and right. what the paper looks like is a kind of precursor for tagging. If you think right. about it this way, the, the, the classic uh, filing is an ordered data field. And they rely on, on the, 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 the physical ordering on the page, your design pieces in some ways, to, 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 to do what we can now do very quickly with, 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 with technological tagging and search and all of those good things. So, so uh, it, it's just one example of the ways in which if we migrated the processes more and more into, a, into an intelligently designed technological space, a lot of that, that fussy stuff might well be able to go away. I, I agree with that up to a point. Uh, but that's sounding like uh, creating technology to help people navigate a system that's more complicated than it should be. We should start by making the process less complicated. <coughs> Touche. I will accept that. Absolutely. Well, I, I think if we, if we, and if we do in this group, you, you probably have unanimity that the system itself is designed to limit access. To your question, and um, on a fairly serious issue, is it? If quality legal help at a reasonable price is a fundamental right, without which the economy and this democracy don't function as intended, when you habitually deny access to a segment of the population, the psychological damage um, and the impact to people's lives on critical important issues are not collateral damage, it's unwinding the entire system. And that's where I think, interestingly, this, you know, there's been a consensus. It's not about making the existing inefficient system a little bit better or providing a new interface to an inefficient system, but rethinking, hey, the system designed for the intention, the consequences right. that everyone's living through today, and the impact is too great. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, why do I change? You know, we love precedent. Many lawyers always say that. <laughs> we love precedent. Well, you know, let me state bars. Why would I change? Mm. I think... Your question gets to the heart of why. Very nicely said. 
we also tend to make the perfect the enemy of the good, as the saying goes, and that, that uh, we, we've got a system that's clearly failing a, a bunch of people, but we, when we propose a solution, they say, oh, that won't be perfect. Uh, 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 <laughs> for instance, there's, there were some folks who were saying, uh, well, the, the technology wouldn't, wouldn't be a solution because some of those f- folks you're not serving, they, they don't have, have, have access to the internet. And I say, that's true. That means that we've got to not, not make it solely internet. But if we can get to two thirds of the people and really help them in a cheaper way, that to me is 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 yardage gained. Uh, there's no reason not not to not to do that. And the fact that we haven't created something with 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 our new vision that's going to be perfect. If it's a whole bunch better, I'm I'm ready to go there. There's also something that was a theme I think that came out of this conference about um, where people are feeling like you know you have to be a disruptor, but you're in the minority and you're going to have to take the punches. And we're each doing it in very different ways, but we are each doing it. I would, though, like to see where is that broader community that is rewarding the judges that are being super creative, that are rewarding uh, technological solutions, that are rewarding thinking about process design, obviously, you know, access at the most fundamental level to to people without the means. You know, in our case, there are companies and in-house legal teams that are so scared of losing their jobs, they will not become more efficient. They will not reevaluate process. They won't even reevaluate what they need legal counsel for within their company. There's an inherent fear of saying, hey, go do it yourself, business guy. You get paid enough money, make some choices, read some things, you're going to be okay. No, no, no. They need to come to the legal department and the bigger legal department. It, it, there's kind of this um, systematic also issue that we have in all of our areas, whether it's Right. It's, it's a chicken and egg, and I don't know how to make it better, but we need to start feeling that there's some reward for working yourself out of a job. That just has to be something that people are rewarded for and move on to bigger and better things. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in the department I have, I feel like that's supported, but it's not, I don't think that's, I don't know how common that is. And, and, and that doesn't mean that everybody in our department is okay with that. They're still like, yo, you say that now, but when I, right? Mm-hmm. And I just don't know, how do we change the culture of the legal industry, whether it's law professors not being afraid of working themselves out of a job, you know, courts, judges. I think there's a real opportunity right now for the ABA, and I don't know if any, you were in the same session with me yesterday when the breakout sessions. Yep. The ABA needs to address this, and there's a real fear that because the way the ABA is structured, where the president makes these these agendas for the year, mm-hmm. and then it just disappears. And I had a conversation with some folks this morning that who expressed exactly that concern. This is a serious issue, and if it just becomes the nineteen the 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 two thousand fourteen slash fifteen goal and goes in in the archive, we've wasted our time. And I think the ABA has an opportunity to break out of its own structure and its own legacies and really say, we have to fix this. And it's not going to be fixed by August 8th or whenever the annual meeting starts. We have to get this. It has to be a priority. And I think it, I think it, whoever is involved in the management of this should get it to the House of Delegates and get this established as mm-hmm. a serious, serious problem. Because otherwise, the risk is that if the ABA doesn't address this stuff, they're going to continue to have a reputation of being increasingly not relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. And they've got a great opportunity to get back in the game full full mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a real opportunity for them. 
I agree with that, but I think the first thing the ABA needs to do is to bring more people into the conversation than just yes. ABA members and lawyers. Absolutely. L lawyers cannot solve this problem themselves. Where are the consumers in this? We need to bring in people who have expertise that <coughs> lawyers don't have. We need to bring in people like Margaret who are tapping the expertise of the business community, of educators, of sociologists, of engineers, of design specialists. That's what we need. Absolutely. But because that's been the problem from day one. They've created their own little moat. And, and I mean, this is what I fought for 30 years writing for ALM. It's about time that they realize that it's, that someone, it may have been you again, someone said that, the law right now is being done for lawyers. It's not being done for the for the the consumers. What we talked about a little bit before, but the ABA is in the same situation. And I'm not I'm not criticizing the ABA. I'm just saying we're at a paradigm shift. And if they want to be relevant with the next with the next with the with the coming changes and the involvement of, in technology, it's time for them to rethink their own house. I think that's a good place to leave it. I want to thank all of you. We're running out of time, but uh, obviously the uh, the minds we have at this table, this conversation could go on for quite a while and it would be very insightful. But uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure meeting all of you, talking with all of you. But I wanted, before we close out, give everybody an opportunity to share some information, some personal information where people can contact you, our listeners, if they have some questions about what they've heard today on our show. I'm going to start uh, with Miss Monica Bay. <laughs> very good. And thank you so much for including me. Uh, the easiest way is mbay, M-B-A-Y, at stanford.edu. Professor Goodenough. Uh, I'm at the Vermont Law School, and my email is ogoodenough at vermontlaw.edu. Uh, you just have to believe that my last name is good enough, just as it sounds, <laughs> and spell ogoodenough at vermontlawspelledout.edu. Margaret. You can find me at my two websites, one for the Stanford Initiative, which is LegalTechDesign.com, and then my own personal blog website is OpenLawLab.com. John. And you can reach me at LegalZoom.com. Lucy. I'm LucyB at Microsoft.com. James. Um, I'm Jay Sandman at LSC.gov, and my last name really is Sandman. Please not to be mixed up with Mariano Rivera, my biggest hero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.